Demonstrators who gathered here say they felt impelled to come. We want Mr. Manson to know that he can't have our children. God loves our children more and he can't have them. religion and entertainment are one and the same and that entertainment can't be blamed for violence if violence is man's true nature. Read it, it's on the internet, it must be true. Marilyn Manson played a gig with Ozzy Osbourne and threw Ozzy out to the crowd and refused to play until the crowd stomped Ozzy to death. Is that true or false? Music is said to contain a deadly message. Today, is it art or evil? You decide. You are listening to the Marilyn Manson Cases podcast, the podcast discussing the accusations, lawsuits, and legal news surrounding shock rocker Marilyn Manson. Please note topics include allegations of abuse some may find disturbing. Welcome to the Marilyn Manson Cases podcast. My name is Lisa, also known as the Manson Cases on social media, and you can find me at themansoncases.com. This episode is a readout of the entire Jane Doe lawsuit filed against Brian Hugh Warner, professionally known as Marilyn Manson. So make sure to listen to the last episode, titled Jane Doe v. Brian Hugh Warner, for added context to this episode as this lawsuit is going to trial next month on October 3rd, 2023, barring any settlements which could occur. Plaintiff Jane Doe brings this action against Brian Warner, a.k.a. Marilyn Manson. Warner used his position of power, celebrity, and connections to exploit and victimize plaintiff during and after their relationship in 2011. Defendant lured plaintiff, a musician, into what was, at first, a consensual romantic relationship. A short time later, however, he raped Ms. Doe. He also subjected Ms. Doe to further degrading acts of sexual exploitation, manipulation, and psychological abuse. Jurisdiction and Venue Venue is proper because defendant resides in Los Angeles County, and the location of the acts at issue in this complaint occurred in Los Angeles. The relief requested is within the jurisdiction of this court. This case is properly filed in this court. Defendant is a citizen of California. Plaintiff seeks substantial relief from the defendant, whose conduct forms a basis for the claims asserted by plaintiff. The principal injuries resulting from the alleged conduct or any related conduct of the defendant were incurred in California. Parties. Plaintiff Jane Doe is an individual who was aggrieved by defendant's actions. She is and has been, at all relevant times, a resident of the state of California, County of Los Angeles. Defendant Brian Warner, a.k.a. Marilyn Manson is and has been, at all relevant times, a resident of the state of California, County of Los Angeles. Statement of Facts Warner controlled plaintiff shortly after meeting her. Plaintiff met Warner in February of 2011 at a pre-Grammy party. Warner struck up a conversation and expressed an interest in plaintiff. He asked for her phone number. Within a few days, he began texting, calling, and emailing her. Warner convinced plaintiff to come to his residence to watch a movie, reassuring her that his assistant, Ms. Ashley Walters, would be present to act as a chaperone. Plaintiff went to his residence, located above a liquor store in Los Angeles, California. Ms. Walters was there as promised, but it was clear to plaintiff that Warner was aggressively pursuing her, despite the presence of his assistant. 
He showered her with compliments and bizarrely spray-painted a phrase in his bedroom regarding plaintiff's nationality. After the first meeting at his apartment, Warner started emailing, texting, and calling plaintiff even more frequently. He invited plaintiff to go on a date with him to the Arclight movie theater. Ms. Walters drove plaintiff and Warner there in his car. After the date at the Arclight, the relationship between plaintiff and Warner became romantic and physical. They did not have intercourse for the first couple weeks because plaintiff was not on birth control and Warner refused to use a condom. Approximately two weeks after meeting plaintiff, Warner told plaintiff that he loved her. He claimed to want a serious, monogamous relationship and asked plaintiff to move in with him. During the first weekend of March, Warner went on a trip to Japan for a fashion show. When he returned, he brought with him numerous gifts for plaintiff, including expensive jewelry and a pink kimono that he expected plaintiff to wear at his apartment. He also gave plaintiff a key to his apartment. From this point on, Warner made clear to plaintiff that she was required to be with him quite often, unless he had band practice or another engagement, at which time he allowed her to go to the duplex she rented with her aunt. Though plaintiff did not give up her duplex, she acquiesced to Warner's demands and effectively moved in with him. Warner became increasingly controlling of plaintiff. When he permitted plaintiff to leave or go to her own residence, Warner would text and call her incessantly, and he would chastise and or punish her if she did not return quickly enough. If plaintiff did not respond to Warner's texts immediately, he would call her angrily, demanding to know where she was and who she was with. Warner would make such texts and calls at any time of day or night, and he expected plaintiff to respond or answer immediately. Warner slept much of the day, was often awake only at night and morning, and kept his apartment extremely dark, sometimes pitch black, and very cold. Plaintiff was often disoriented and unable to keep track of time because the windows were covered or blacked out. She regularly had to use a flashlight inside the apartment. Despite the frigid temperature, Warner refused to allow plaintiff to wear clothing, demanding that she be nude much of the time. He also would become furious with her if she attempted to touch the thermostat. In addition to the darkness and being cold virtually all of the time, plaintiff was often hungry at Warner's apartment. Initially, when plaintiff moved in, Warner would allow her to eat, but over time he started to deny her food. Warner kept food for himself, but he forbade plaintiff from eating. Warner told plaintiff that because she was his girlfriend, she needed to lose weight because her weight embarrassed him. Plaintiff was frightened of Warner's fans. Warner told her frequently that his fans were extreme in their devotion and likely would hate her. They were frighteningly loyal to him and fanatically obsessed. Warner warned plaintiff that his fans had bullied and harassed previous girlfriends of his, and she was nervous about them finding out who she was. Plaintiff often felt frightened of Warner, but he went to great lengths to gain her trust and reassure her whenever she expressed a concern. Warner was decades older and a self-proclaimed genius. He often spoke about his extremely high IQ, his accomplishments, and his famous friends. The fact that he had such famous friends and beautiful ex-girlfriends made Plaintiff feel as though she should put aside her doubts and fears. Plaintiff was made to feel inferior to Warner due to the age difference. He is much older and his status and power, and everyone around him also seemed to treat him with extreme reverence and adulation. Warner told Plaintiff about his relationship with Evan Rachel Wood and that he had wanted to kill her. He told Plaintiff about a time he had tied Ms. Wood to a chair and pointed a gun at her. He said he considered killing Ms. Wood, but then decided to be merciful. 
Warner recounted a story about the previous Christmas Day when he had called Ms. Wood 158 times and cut himself every time she did not answer the phone. There were a few key moments or milestones in the relationship where Warner implied to plaintiff that he was honoring her, such as when he first gave her the key to his apartment. The biggest of these honors, or benchmarks in the relationship, came when he told plaintiff he had decided that he wanted to show her a videotape he called Groupie, which he claimed to have made in the 1990s. He kept the videotape locked in a safe and told plaintiff that that only three people in the world besides him had ever seen the video. He told plaintiff that if he showed this to her, it was because he trusted her completely and that it was incredibly meaningful. When it came time to show the videotape, Warner sent Ms. Walters home so he and plaintiff could be alone. He explained to plaintiff that he had filmed the video in 1996, after his band had played a show at the Hollywood Bowl. He said he was staying at a house located near the Cahuenga Cross in the Hollywood Hills. Warner turned the volume of the sound system to a very high setting and pressed play. The film started with the band partying together. It was very rowdy. Warner put a condom on the penis of bandmate Twiggy Ramirez, Jordy White, and performed oral sex on him. There was a knock or ring at the door. Someone answered it. The door opened, and a seemingly young teenage fan was holding something she brought for Warner. She was wearing a Marilyn Manson band t-shirt and dark eye makeup. Warner ordered she be let in. He then tied the young fan to a chair and lectured and interrogated her. He humiliated and berated her. She cried and pled. The girl's t-shirt was removed, and Warner forced her to drink a glass of one of the band members' urine. Later, a gun is introduced, and Warner threatened her with it and possibly pistol-whipped her. Plaintiff was repulsed by, and scared of, the film. As Warner increased his abuse and violence in the film, Plaintiff began thinking that he was showing this to her because he was going to kill her. Plaintiff began glancing at the front door and trying to figure out if she could run to it before he could grab her. However, Warner had placed himself between Plaintiff and the door. He spent a lot of the time watching Plaintiff's face and reactions. As Warner's screaming and abuse got worse, Plaintiff was no longer able to hold back her tears. Warner saw that she was crying, but he told her that she needed to keep watching until the end. When the video was over, Plaintiff remembers crying and asking repeatedly if the girl in the video was dead. Warner would not answer. Plaintiff thought Warner murdered her. Warner claimed the girl was actually his girlfriend at the time. Plaintiff was confused because the girl looked like a young teenager. Warner told Plaintiff that when he first showed the movie to Tony, his manager, Tony told him that he needed to lock the tape in a safe and never show it to anyone, or else Warner would be sent to prison. Plaintiff had never seen anything so disturbing, and was traumatized. She did not understand why he would be sent to prison if what transpired was all just acting. Plaintiff spent a lot of time questioning Warner to figure out who the girl was and confirm she was okay, but Warner gave only vague and evasive answers. He claimed it was a woman in his Long Road Out of Hell music video, even though the young girl in Groupie did not resemble the woman in the video. Warner never told Plaintiff what became of the girl in the film. One night toward the end of March, Plaintiff was meant to meet up with Warner and his entourage, but due to a miscommunication between Plaintiff and Ms. Walters, Plaintiff did not know where to meet him. When she arrived, Warner was furious at her for being late and behaved very angrily toward her all evening. When they returned to his apartment, he became more and more erratic and angry. Warner commanded Plaintiff and Ms. Walters to dance and sing karaoke. Ms. Walters told Plaintiff that they had to comply with Warner's wishes and that Plaintiff needed to act happy and smile in order to avoid conflict. 
plaintiff felt degraded and stripped of her free will. Warner went on a drug and alcohol-fueled bender for the next three days. During this time, Warner screamed and repeatedly threatened both Ms. Walters and her. He threw a glass against the wall, shattering it, and when plaintiff tried to clean it up, he screamed at her and forced her to stop. At one point when plaintiff was crying, Mr. Warner ordered Ms. Walters to take photos of plaintiff crying. Plaintiff wanted them to be deleted, but Ms. Walters refused out of fear of Warner. Warner raped and repeatedly sexually abused plaintiff. The physical and sexual aspect of plaintiff's relationship with Warner was relatively gentle and romantic at first. However, that changed quickly. Warner demanded extremely frequent sex, unless he was busy recording or entertaining people. Plaintiff was not able to sleep through the night because that was the time Warner was awake and most demanding of sex. When he finally allowed plaintiff to sleep, he interrupted her sleep approximately every hour or two to demand sex. If plaintiff did manage to briefly fall asleep during this time, Warner would come into the bedroom, often making screaming noises for the purpose of waking her suddenly. Warner was constantly angry at plaintiff for being tired. Warner often would fall asleep during intercourse after taking sleeping pills. He would force plaintiff to have sex with him and to be on top of him during sex. She would pray for Warner to pass out during intercourse. When this happened, plaintiff would try to slip away and get some sleep, but the moment she moved, Warner would wake up and demand to resume the sexual activity. Warner began demanding plaintiff not move a muscle during sex. He ordered her to lie on top of him and stay perfectly still, or else he would scream at her. Warner's three-day drug binge, discussed above, was another turning point in the relationship between plaintiff and Warner. Warner became increasingly violent during sex. He would grab her extremely forcefully. At one point, Warner bit plaintiff on her neck exceedingly hard. Plaintiff remembers being terrified during that time frame that her aunt would come into the bathroom while she was showering and see the bruises and other marks on her body from Warner's physical abuse. One time after seeing Warner, plaintiff remembers that the left side of her chest and neck had turned completely black with bruises he had inflicted on her. One day in early June 2011, plaintiff visited Warner very early in the morning, per his demand. Plaintiff and Warner sat on his apartment couch. Warner began insisting that plaintiff kiss him and engage in sexual acts with him. For once, plaintiff refused. Plaintiff was crying, but Warner was relentless. Warner ultimately forced plaintiff to perform oral sex on him. While she was crying, he held the back of her head and forced his penis into her mouth. Afterward, plaintiff cried herself to sleep at Warner's apartment. Some weeks later, plaintiff went to return Warner's apartment key. When he opened the door, he was wearing the pink kimono he had given her. Plaintiff remembers being in the hallway by his front door, about to leave, when Warner forcibly pushed her to the ground. With her face down on the carpet and his hands on top of her, Warner raped Ms. Doe. Warner repeated plaintiff's name as he raped her. He was saying that she had driven him crazy, and she was making him do this to her. Warner was wearing black jeans under the kimono and plaintiff remembers seeing them around his ankles as she looked back during the rape. Afterward, while standing in the doorway, he said to her, Don't you ever fucking make me do that to you again. Warner then threatened to kill plaintiff, saying he would bash her head in. He also bragged that he would get away with it if he indeed murdered her because she was a nobody, and he was a celebrity who had contacts with the police. Plaintiff was supposed to go to work after this visit, but now recalls that she could not bring herself to go. She has recovered memories of driving around aimlessly and calling her work to reschedule her appointments, but does not remember driving herself home or how she got home.
plaintiff retained no memory of being sexually assaulted between the time that she repressed the assaults and February 2021, when she regained her memories. She did not remember the forced oral sex or the vaginal rape during this time period. Plaintiff cannot be certain of the exact moment that she repressed the memories of the forced oral and vaginal rape, but knows that it was sometime in the hours or at most very few days after the vaginal rape. She knows that she had repressed her memories at least by the time that she traveled to Australia on July 3, 2011, which was only a week or so later. Plaintiff was not experiencing any distress during that trip and did not remember what had happened to her. In the months and years after the vaginal rape, plaintiff began experiencing vaginal pain and inquired about this with her doctor, who initially could not diagnose the problem. Plaintiff went on to experience vaginal pain that made intercourse difficult or near impossible for multiple years. Over the course of this time, she saw multiple gynecologists in the UK who suggested the problem was psychological, and repeatedly asked if she had been sexually assaulted. Plaintiff could not understand why her doctors would think this, and became very angry at the repeated suggestion. Even upon being asked directly, her memories were so unavailable that she had no ability to recognize the truth. She was also referred to a specialist more recently in 2019, who again asked similar questions, but plaintiff again was unable to access her memories to answer the questions truthfully. On Monday, February 1, 2021, an employee at plaintiff's management company texted plaintiff before plaintiff woke up, warning her that there was a big story involving multiple women accusing Marilyn Manson of sexual assault. This employee knew that plaintiff and Warner had been in a romantic relationship in the past and that it had ended badly, so assumed that plaintiff would be upset by the news. Plaintiff woke up and found this text, then went straight to the news coverage and read multiple articles about the accusations. She was very upset for the women and spent the day re-examining the details of her relationship with Mr. Warner. At this point in time, plaintiff remembered the abusive aspects of the relationship, which she had never repressed, and recalled the bruising she experienced during consensual sex with Mr. Warner. She also recalled the fact that he had traumatized her by forcing her to watch the groupie video. Plaintiff did not coordinate with any of the other survivors prior to the news release on February 1, 2021. She did not know any of them personally, with the exception of Ashley Walters and Sarah McNeely. Ms. Walters had been Warner's assistant during plaintiff's relationship with Mr. Warner. Plaintiff did not speak to Ms. Walters after the general time period of her relationship with Mr. Warner until after the news release on February 1, 2021. Plaintiff met Ms. McNeely twice back during the general time period of her relationship with Mr. Warner, but did not speak to her again until after the news release on February 1, 2021. Over the next several days, Plaintiff spent a lot of time thinking about her relationship with Mr. Warner. Sometime during this week, Plaintiff remembered the forced oral sex and that she had cried herself to sleep at his apartment following that incident. Plaintiff repressed the memory that Mr. Warner had forced her to perform oral sex and that she had cried herself to sleep at his apartment afterward between at least July 3, 2011, at the latest, and February 2, 2021, at the earliest. On Friday, February 5, 2021, Plaintiff was taking a walk when she suddenly remembered the vaginal rape from 2011. Her legs buckled and she staggered as the memory came back to her. She immediately felt physically ill. Her memories of that day have come back gradually since, though there are still parts of the day that are missing. Plaintiff repressed the memory that Mr. Warner had pushed her to the ground and vaginally raped her, including all of the allegations in paragraph 38. 
between at least July 3, 2011, at the latest, and February 5, 2021. On March 8, 2021, plaintiff spoke to law enforcement officers regarding her experiences with Mr. Warner. On the Sunday prior, she was reviewing the details of her experience in preparation for this meeting, at which point she remembered Mr. Warner making death threats to her following the vaginal rape. Plaintiff did not recall the death threats between at least July 3, 2011, at the latest, and March 7, 2011. <laughs>